0: Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I've mentioned this before several times in the past, but at home we have a 12-pound, 11-year-old dog named Charlotte. She sleeps on the bed with Julie and I. She snores like a freight train. She eats almost nothing. She is Reasonably well-trained, she spends her days lounging and sleeping outside all day long and most significantly, our 12-pound, 11-year-old Charlotte thinks she is in charge of everything and everyone. If you're familiar with the, uh, any mafia history, uh, you may have heard of Carlo Gambino. Namesake, yeah, we get a cheer for that, that's good namesake of uh, the gambino crime family family so i call charlotte charlo gambino because she just kind of reigns and rules and thinks she's in charge of everything at our house i believe charlotte is an eight on the enneagram for those of you that are in that sort of paradigm she is the same type believe it or not as our own greg rosler who is sitting over here they're both eights i see a lot of similarities the eight If I understand it, which I don't very well, but the eight is the challenger. Strong, bold, we'll get to the parts that are like Rosler, but strong, (laughs) bold, in charge, likes conflict. This is Charlotte. So you get a sense of her, but there's one more thing about her. It's a little bit harder to describe, and it has to do with her attitude, with what we might say, her posture towards me. You see, Charlotte is against me. Now, that's overstating it just a bit. She's not necessarily mean to me, but it's the vibe she gives off. I would say she has an attitude toward me. I would say, in many ways, she is against me. Maybe it's because she, she is so passionately and exclusively for Julie. Julie is the center of Charlotte's world. She adores julie and she tolerates me it's kind of like how people deal with julie and i they adore her And they tolerate me. When Julie's gone, Charlotte all but ignores me and waits for Julie to return. When Julie is home, Charlotte wants to be near Julie. When it gets to be about 7.30 or quarter to 8, Charlotte looks at Julie with this kind of look on her face that says, it's time for you and I to go in the bedroom and, you know, wrap up this day. When Julie's home, all is well in Charlotte's world. Let's just say it. Julie enables Charlotte. She really does. It's another sermon. We'll leave that for now. I exist, on the other hand, in Charlotte's mind at least, to do stuff for her. She never just wants to hang out. When she comes to me, usually, most of the time, it's because she wants something from me. Nearly every night at some point, the same routine unfolds. She comes and she stands right in front of me and she just stares at me. And she has a penetrating stare. It's a, I'm looking at you chump and you better be paying attention kind of stare. She's got these beady eyes and they look just into the depths of my soul. I can almost feel her saying through her stare, you're not a good person and I know it. (laughs) She makes me nervous when she stares at me. I'm actually afraid of her. Did I mention she was 12 pounds, but I'm actually afraid of her when she wants something she'll stand in front of me she has this bottle brush tail that starts waving like this and then she starts growling at me and she'll roll her eyes up in her head and she'll growl at me and i have no idea why maybe she wants me to feed her maybe she wants an ice cube water popcorn a carb balanced tortilla i have no idea what it is that she wants i don't know what to do I don't know what to say, and quite frankly, I start panicking. And sometimes I'll say, "Julie, what does she want?" And Julie's going, "I don't know. You got to figure it out." Charlotte has attitude toward me. She's got a vibe, and I want to say this to kind of bring down this long-winded story. She opposes me, and I can feel her anti-Mike vibe. We also have about a 90-pound English lab named Gus. He's the greatest dog in the history of dogs. Gus is a five on the Enneagram. He's Scott Schaefer, the thinker, the contemplative. Gus will lay out in the backyard and he'll watch flies, never chase them, just watch them. Hummingbirds come down and he just looks at them like somewhere in that hummingbird is the meaning of life. He's an old soul even though he's only two and unlike Charlotte, Gus is for me and I can feel it. He looks for me when he gets up. He looks at me when I'm about to leave because he so desperately wants to come. He waits for me when I'm gone. He lays next to me when I'm in the backyard. Gus is my friend. Gus is my companion. I can feel Gus's pro-Mike vibe. He wants what's good for me. Gus's attitude toward me is in sharp contrast to Charlo Gambino's anti-Mike vibe. And you know what? There's an incredible difference. I can feel it. I can describe it. I could write it out. There's an incredible difference that I feel when I think of Gus being for me versus when I think of Charlotte being against me. It's just a feeling. You know what it is. When someone is for you, it takes you in one direction. When someone is against you, it takes you in a different direction. Let's think about this for a moment. As Christian people, when we consider how we think of those who are unlike us, or how we think of those who are different, as we think of the other today, or let's put it this way, as we think of the world, here's the question. What's our posture as Christian people. Are we like Charlotte toward me? Kind of an oppositional stance, an anti-posture? Or are we like Gus toward me? Kind of a for others, pro-others, sort of a invitational and welcoming posture of love that wants what's best for others and for the world. Today we are continuing to talk about the ways in which Christians need the Holy Spirit's ongoing conversion. How we as Christ followers need to be born again and again and again. And I've enjoyed this series. I've enjoyed as we've stepped into some of these things because as I mentioned at the outset when we began this series, I actually think this concept is crucial to the future of the church in our nation, not whether or not it's gonna exist, but whether or not it's going to have influence in our society and in our nation. And today we are considering the idea of Christians converting from being anti to for. Converting from being known for what we are against instead of being known for, for what we are for. This is just so important in our divided Intense and, and chaotic world. David Kinneman and a guy named Gabe Lyons wrote a book over 10 years ago now called Unchristian. And in it, these authors reported their research where they sought to find out the perceptions of younger people, younger people have of Christians and of the church. It's an eye opening book. The Unchristian title is not geared toward the world, it's geared toward the church. And speaking of Christians, they write this. We have become famous for what we oppose rather than for who we are for. Modern day Christianity no longer seems Christian. And 10 years later, this continues to be a prophetic truth. Christians famous for what they oppose, for what they're against instead of what they're for. Famous for a posture of anti and against instead of pro and for. Modern day Christianity no longer seems Christian, I would suggest, because it lacks character. It lacks, at its core, love. It lacks God's agape, sacrificial, other-centered love, and it lacks unbounded grace. So a few insights related to this anti-to-for conversion that come out of this scripture we read a moment ago. First of all, Jesus was against a few things, but the thing I want to talk about is Jesus was against the religiously hard-hearted of his time. There's really only one group in the Bible that Jesus seems to go all Charlotte on, to stand against, to kind of oppose, and it was the religious people of his time, the leaders in particular, those who were convinced they already got it. And Jesus often came and confronted rather sternly, this group of people. In his time, the Pharisees were the religious expert of the day, and they were sure they got it. They were sure they were tracking with God's will. They understood the scriptures, or at least they thought they did. So their system was based, they thought, on God's truth and on God's plan. And we got to stay with this because the implications hopefully are obvious. The Pharisees were sure they were tracking with God's will. But Jesus regularly went Charlotte on the religious experts of his time. He stood against them, and he opposed them. In our scripture reading, Jesus and his disciples go to dinner at Matthew the tax collector's house, and Matthew invites a bunch of his other undesirable friends to join them that night, tax collectors and sinners as they are named in our story. So Matthew's house is filled with undesirables and Jesus is right smack in the middle of them and he's eating and he's drinking and he's interacting. He actually got labeled a glutton and a drunk for doing this kind of thing. And the Pharisees saw him in this house surrounded by all these people, they saw this supposedly holy person with people they deemed to be unholy degenerates, and they smugly asked Jesus' disciples right out of our reading, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They are the enemy. They are the ones we're supposed to be against. They're the ones we're supposed to stay away from, or are they? And actually, Jesus opposed religious people because their religious devotion had stripped them of God's agape love. It's a fascinating way that this works. And you see this right in this story. He is in the middle of this group. These religious leaders are saying, why is he doing this? And what comes emerging off the page is Jesus opposed these religious people because their religious devotion to their system had stripped their heart of agape love. Put it this way, the religious people could no longer see the image of God in other people. And once that goes, people stop being people in our eyes. Well, these religious experts could no longer see real people with a face and a name and a story. Rather they saw categories, in and out, good and bad, sinner and saint, right and wrong. They gave people grades. They no longer saw the person, they saw the behavior and the behavior became the person. So this was one group Jesus was against, the religious people. And we've talked about this before, but it bears letting it sink in. The religious people were the furthest from God because their religious system was more important to them than God. Let's talk about who Jesus was for, and again, we see this right out of our reading. He was for the sinner. Sinner in that sort of air-quoted term is one of the derogatory words used by religious people to label those. Outside of their group. Matthew was a tax collector before he met Jesus. And in first century Palestine, the label tax collector instantly evoked disdain and disgust and hatred. Tax collectors were Jewish people who were in partnership with the Roman Empire. And so they were considered traitors because they stole money from their own people. Here's how it worked. A tax collector would pay Rome in advance for the taxes of a particular region or a particular district. And then it was up to the tax collector to go to the people and get his money back and more if he wanted and he usually wanted. So tax collecting was a seedy profession. It was a get-rich profession, and if you had to rough people up, you would rough them up so they would pay. You would overcharge to line your own pockets. You didn't care who was hurt along the way. And in our story, Jesus sees Matthew at his tax collector's booth. It's probably not the first time he had seen Matthew or Matthew had seen him. And it's probably not the first time Matthew had heard Jesus speak. But as Jesus is walking by, he invites Matthew to come and be his disciple. And right there, Matthew gets up and starts to follow Jesus. And right there, Jesus shows who and what he is for. I mean, it was unthinkable, unthinkable for a religious guy to be for a tax collector. They were bottom feeders. So the fact that Jesus notices him, talks to him, and invites him into his group was a demonstration of who Jesus loves and who he is for. Then Matthew throws a big party, and Jesus and his disciples are invited. Jesus and his disciples have dinner at Matthew, the tax collector's house. And right there, once again, Jesus has shown his hand. Jesus is for this guy, and Jesus is for this group of sinners gathered at Matthew's house. Our reading says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples you see what's happening jesus's way his life his teaching his message the way he interacts with people the way of jesus is now drawing the irreligious and the broken and the undesirables to him the very ones The religious people said keep them away Jesus is living and teaching and acting in a way that says let them come near Matthew's friends were undesirables they were according to the Mosaic law the word would be they were unclean they were prostitutes and crooks and drunks and world-class sinners who had rejected God and followed the cravings of their own wicked hearts let's stay in this they were outsiders they were despicable. They were ones that the religious people would look at and shake their head with disdain and detestment. I can't believe those people would be the phrase of the religious. And Jesus would say, I want to be with those people. Jesus and his disciples are having dinner at Matthew, the tax collector's house. And it's a little different than it is today, uh, but just to kind of step into the first century again, if you had dinner at someone's house, that was a major statement. That was a big time statement being made. And here's what the statement meant. It meant Jesus was saying, I love this guy. I want to be with this guy. I am for this guy and for all these people who are here with me. And all this is happening, and again, don't miss it. The prim and the proper religious stood back and shook their heads. So get it. Our teacher, our savior, our Lord, and our king eats and drinks and converses and laughs and interacts with tax collectors and prostitutes and drug addicts and drunks and the greedy, and the gossip, and the sexually immoral, and Democrats, and Republicans, and you, and me. Why? Because he sees the image of God in people, and he wants what is best for them. Jesus, our teacher then. Jesus, your example, and my example, is for those who live as though they are against him. What's our posture toward those who live as though they are against God? Is it like Charlotte? Or is it like Gus? Jesus, your example, is for those who live as though they are against him. He was for us, remember, before we ever gave him a second thought. He was before you, before you even cared about him. He was before me when all he was was a celestial vending machine that I occasionally put a few coins in and pulled the lever and hopefully got what I wanted. He was for us before we cared about him. He came to us. He put on human flesh. He crossed the divide. He crossed The barrier to be on our turf, to stand in our shoes, to be with us because ultimately he is for us. And just like when I think Gus is for me, it does something to us to go, wait, God is for us. God is for this world. God wants people to experience what he has for them. And it is good for us to consider in these crazy days and times, what is our posture as Christian people and as a Christian community toward the world? Is it Charlotte or Gus? Is it anti or for? And secondly, and last or thirdly, Jesus is for the hurting. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus always gravitated toward the hurting. One of the most prominent aspects of the Gospels is how often he reaches out to people who have tangible needs. So he eats with those who are undesirable. He heals the sick. So many stories of healings. So many stories of God's power on display. He moves toward those who are in some way forgotten or kicked to the edges of society. Beggars and lepers. People that had been elbowed out of the way and thought to be worthless. And he moves toward them. He intervenes when an adulterous woman is got a few minutes left to live. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's kind of everywhere in the Gospels. The message of the kingdom was for the hungry and for the hurting. Jesus was for those who were hurting, who were broken, who were lonely, who were searching for something, who were sad, who were disappointed, whatever word you prefer. A couple months ago, I was with some people in a social setting whom I did not know. And for a while at least, actually a good while, they did not know I was a pastor. And This is always good when I can sort of sneak in and just be a regular person. It's amazing how much you can learn by listening to what others are saying and listening between the lines to what they are trying not to say. And you know what comes out? You know what came out in this setting I was in? And it came out from multiple sources. Fear, sadness. What came out and was there between the lines was relational disconnect that was getting deeper and wider. Disappointment with various things. And as this world becomes more chaotic and uncertain and divisive, it's harder to hide the pain. Hurt is rising and it's all around us. And Jesus was for the hurting. I was in a conversation with some friends just the other day. We got onto a particular topic. I asked a few questions and it was like a dam broke and pain and confusion just gushed forth. And it's all sitting right there, just beneath the surface. But in chaotic and difficult times, it's hard to keep the hurt beneath the surface and here's the thing this is not unusual I'm not talking about like weirdos who can't handle life as we might think of this this is increasingly the norm in the church with us and outside the church doesn't matter people are hurting and they're wondering if anyone cares or if there's anywhere they can go to navigate the pain and find love and hope along the way. So I continue to think about Oak Hills and just the simple question, what are we for as a Christian community? Who are we for? I would suggest the hurting. I would suggest the vulnerable is whom we are for. I would suggest the broken is who we are for. I would suggest the searching is who we are for. I would suggest the lonely is who we are for. I would suggest the sinner is who we are for. I think of us then continuing to be first a people. That is to be people who are out in this world, who are out at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, who are in our groups, in our gatherings, people who are scattered all over the place, not just here, but people, a people, out in the world. I think of us continuing to be first a people and second A place where tax collectors and prostitutes, the greedy, the gossip, the sexually confused, the gender confused, the insecure, find love and hope and grace and truth through us, in us, and among us. A people in a place where Republicans, Democrats, the unhappily married, those who are going through a separation, those who are going through a divorce, those who have been divorced, those who are deeply hurting. There's something in them that's wounded and they're hurting. My desire is for us to be a people and secondly, a place where people who are hurting find hope and healing and new life in Christ, in and through our little family. Jesus was for the hurting and we should be too. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you because your grace does not know limits. Your love keeps reaching beyond the places where we think it can go. We are grateful because you have shown yourself to be a God of extravagant love, and we, those of us who are your followers, have experienced your extravagant love and your unbounded grace And thank you for reaching to us thank you for the forgiveness that we have experienced in you thank you that your love reached all the way to where we were at the bottom we are grateful because when we think we've got you pegged Something new is on the horizon, if we have ears to hear. We're grateful, just even in this story, that we read about people who, in that time, nobody with any religious sense would get anywhere near those who were as despicable as Matthew and his motley crew. And yet, our Lord, our Savior, our King, is right there with them. Loving them so much, willing to be called a glutton and a drunk, glad to be called a friend of sinners. Lord, help us to remember that we have been And maybe still are right in that place where Matthew and his friends were we are not far from that remind us that you are the one that has done exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine and it is your desire to advertise in this chaotic and tense and fragile and fractured world that there is hope there is a better way that you know how to put things back together you know how to restore the human soul and we simply bask in the beauty of this morning the glory of your creation the encouragement of being with one another and this simple reality that you are for us and you are for those who are hurting and you are for those of us who are sinners help us to incarnate your extravagant love to embody it to display it to live it out your extravagant love and your unbounded grace help us to live this out in this broken world and we pray these things in jesus name